Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. So Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 38. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So let me um, open us up with prayer. Oh Lord God, we thank you that we can gather together, um, even though this is weird and this is uh, different. Lord, nevertheless, we're confident that you're going to bless this. And even though we're not together in person, we're together in spirit. And so Lord, we, we look to you today. We look to your word to feed us and to edify us. And God, today, Um, As we look at this very difficult and challenging passage, we pray that you would convict our hearts and that you would teach us what it means to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, we're at that point now, that very difficult line uh, to understand where it says, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And the passage um, that we're looking at is from Matthew chapter 25, in which Jesus tells, um, he gives an illustration about the sheep and the goats. Now, um, up until this point in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus has been telling parables about the end time. So it's very clear that the scripture teaches, and from Jesus' perspective, he came once in humility. He came once in weakness. He came once very small as a baby, which we celebrate at Christmas. But Jesus will come again, and when he returns, he comes as the Lion of Judah. He comes in power. He comes as a, as a mighty judge. And so today, um, what we're thinking about and reflecting on is this idea that when the Lord returns— he comes as the almighty supreme judge. And he says, he doesn't say, um, he doesn't teach this as a parable, but he's very explicit. He says, when I return. And so it's, it's not really even meant to be kind of a, an illustrative story. Jesus is actually saying what it's going to be like. This is what it's going to be like. I'm going to come. I'm going to return with all the angels and all the heavenly glory. Um, and I'm going to return as a judge. And what he uses to describe that is the way a, um, a shepherd well, in ancient times, uh, if he has been out with the flocks, he'll come and the sheep, of course, at nighttime need to stay with the sheep and the goats will need to stay with the goats. And so the shepherd will shep- separate out the sheep and the goats. And so what Jesus is teaching here is that they're really, at the end of the day, there are just two kinds of people. There are sheep and there are goats. 
There's no in-between, there's no middle ground. It's either one or the other. And the sheep are the ones that he rewards with eternal life, and the goats are the ones um, that are cast away from God to eternal punishment. Now, this, if I'm totally honest with you, uh, this is one of my, you know, I find personally, especially in this cultural climate, this to be one of the most difficult kind of passages to talk about when it comes to judgment. That is an area that a lot of um, secular people and non-Christian friends of mine really, really struggle to, to listen to this and to hear this and to not outright dismiss God as being unfair. And so the question is, I think that a lot of people will ask is how is it possible that a righteous and holy and loving God could send people away to eternal punishment? It simply doesn't have, uh, doesn't seem fair to a lot of people. Um, and I've had many friends, many friends over the years who love to put me on the spot and uh, will push me to answer the question. If I die, am I going to hell? Am I, am I going to go to hell? Ben, am I going to go to hell? And I, I find that to be just a, a horrible position to be put in. Uh, you know, I don't know the, their eternal destiny. And yet a lot of people, for, the, for a lot of people, that idea that, that a loving God could send people to hell is something that they just don't want to have any part of. So having thought about it, um, I, you know, I, have, I have really two responses. Number one is that we, we simply have to be, always be sure that we're emphasizing the right thing. And so I think if we actually read the Gospels and you look through and you see what kind of person Jesus is, and as you reflect on the fact that God is, you know, in Christ is reaching out and with, with, with everything that he has is offering up himself and creating absolutely every possible opportunity for people to be reconciled with him, right? This picture that we get of God, especially as is revealed to us in Christ, is not of some God that's up in heaven, like looking to judge people and looking to, oh, okay, you know, he he did, he or she did such and such a sin. Okay, they're going to hell. I mean, that's just not the picture of God that we get. I mean, if anything, we get a we get a picture of God, you know, like in the in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The picture that we get of God is you know, he's welcoming the undeserving, he's welcoming sinners, he's welcoming tax collectors, he's welcoming drunks. I mean, this is God. God is not, he, he, it is not his desire to, to pour wrath out on anybody, but it is his desire for all people to, to accept the offer that is in Christ. And so really, I think that at the end of the day, C.S. Lewis um, has some, some help for, for us understanding um, a, a, maybe a little bit of an easier perspective to take on this. Um, which is that God offers forgiveness and offers heaven, eternal life to anyone who will put their faith and trust in God. And so at the end of the day, right, the only people essentially, this is what C.S. Lewis says, the only people essentially who go to hell are the people who opted for it. So this is what he says. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. So I think that's a really important thing to remember. Uh, response number two, um, to somebody who would ask me and say to me, Ben, how could it possibly be that God judges the world? My question to you is, how is it possible that he doesn't judge the world? 
right? You know, there was a situation a number of years ago in Florida where there were two men, they were both immigrant uh, who immigrant workers in the United States who had come. Their names were Daniel de Abreu and Sefiro Furtado. They were Janitors essentially worked long hours at nighttime to clean offices. They immigrated here with their families. And these two men were out at a club one night, and um, they accidentally spilled alcohol on the shirt of an uh, NFL uh, tight end. Uh, Maybe some of you saw the the Netflix um, movie about Aaron Fernandez. And it is thought that Aaron Fernandez... Um, later caught up with them and drove up his uh, his silver SUV, caught up with them, and then opened fire on them and shot them both dead right in the street simply because of the accidental um, spilling uh, spilling a drink on his shirt. Now, the families, of course, were, were devastated. And for years, no one had any idea who did this because the the thing of it was, was these guys were not into drugs. These guys were not into gangs. Um, there, there was absolutely no motive uh, and the crime just seemed to be completely, completely um, absurd. Uh, and so eventually the silver um, SUV that had committed the crime was found years later. It was a close associate of Aaron Fernandez. To be, to be fair, Aaron Fernandez was eventually acquitted of those murders, so they didn't find him guilty of having those. So in the end, the family really gets, gets no justice. So no, you know, no one is found to have done that, to have killed these young men in the prime of life. No one pays the cost. Um, do we really... And this is a question. Do we really want to say that, that God is a God who simply lets that kind of stuff happen? And there's absolutely, there, there's no repercussions. There's no justice, right? Do we want to tell the survivors of the Holocaust that, that, that you know, in the end, people can just sort of do whatever they want to do uh, and there's no justice, that, that God is not a God who makes things right in the end? Do we want to talk to all the people who have been marginalized in the world and who have been abused and who have not gotten justice, that, that in the end, God will not right wrongs? I think that that's a very, very difficult position to be in. Okay, So moving on from that then, um, the, the parable reveals for us a very surprising basis for judgment. Um, Interesting thing is that in this situation, both the righteous and the wicked are somewhat taken unawares. So as Jesus brings the sheep and the goats, he separates them. He's like, you did this, this, and this. And both the righteous and the wicked sort of are very innocently like, we didn't even know uh, we were doing this. But what is the basis for the judgment? So we get it in verses 35 to 36. So Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. So to me, and I've been wrestling with this passage all week, uh, extremely convicted by it, it is amazing and astonishing that in the end, right, at the time of Christ's return, that this is the final indication when, when God returns and he sees the state of people, the state of their hearts, this is the picture of the people that he deems to be the righteous. And I think serious Christians have to take a break and they have to consider that so many of the things that they tend to look to that validate them and and that they think make them look 
um, good in the eyes of God simply do not count in the grand scheme of things, right? Your denomination is not what gets you into heaven. Uh, Jesus says nothing about your theology and good Christians for hundreds, thousands of years are arguing fine points of theology, debating various points, dividing into camps, um, thinking of their own camp as being higher than the other. In the end, it is not how powerful you are in the spirit, right? Jesus talks in the, uh, in Matthew chapter seven about those who cast out demons and did miracles. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. Your religious practices are at the end of the day are not the things that God is looking to that count that determine whether you're in or out. It's not how many hours you pray. It's not how many days you fast. It's not your church, your perfect church attendance or lack thereof, right? At the end of the day, and remember in Matthew 25, this is Jesus. It's the very end of his earthly ministry. This is just before the final days as he's about to be, be um, crucified on a cross. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples. This is some of the last teaching that he gives them. The, the final words, the most important thing that he wants them to remember as he's about to enter his suffering, this is the question. Did you feed the hungry? Did you feed the thirsty? Did you invite the stranger in? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit the sick? Did you come and visit me in prison? It is not theology, it is not denomination, it is your and my love. It is the quality of our love. Now, I want to um, just distinguish between two kinds of love. There's easy love and there's hard love. And I, I showed Christy the easy love picture and she's like, what is that? What is that? What are you going to be talking about there? What, what in the world do you talk, are you talking about? But I want to make a distinction between easy love and hard love, okay? me. Loving my wife, Christy, is easy love in the sense that not that it doesn't require sacrifice, but the thing is, she's my wife, right? She's my wife. So loving her, making sacrifices for her, putting her first, putting her needs ahead of my, my own, like in the grand scheme of things, these are easy because she loves me back because she's my wife, right? It's, it's really not, it's not that hard to love my wife. It's not, it's not hard at all. Right. And Jesus says interesting things. He says, you know, even tax collectors, they love their own. Right. He's like, if you want to have love that goes a step beyond, if you want to have the kind of love that God loves, it's not easy love. It's, it's hard love. Right? Try loving people who don't love you. Try loving uh, people who can't pay you anything back. Try, try loving people that loving them in no way whatsoever increases your status uh, in the world. Right. I mean, even mob bosses can love their kids. Even mob bosses can, can, can love their, their, their spouses, their, their elderly parents. So that, that's easy love. The, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about in verses 35 through 36, this is hard love. This is hard love. This is the kind of love that God has for his people and for us and is the kind of love that he fully, I think based on what Jesus is saying here, fully expects us to be emulating and living out this kind of love. This is love that is smelly and stinky. This is love, loving the needy, loving the poor, re loving refugees, loving the, the vulnerable, loving those who don't have rights, 
loving those who aren't protected, loving those who, whom society has locked away and forgotten about and thrown away the key. It's loving people who are contagious. I, I, I call this love, and Mother Teresa, she actually calls it humble love. Maybe humble love is a, is a better kind of word than hard love, but um, hard love is love that requires sacrifice, requires um, overcoming unpleasantness. It requires sacrifices of time, energy, and money. It requires overcoming intolerance and judgmental attitudes that people have towards people. It requires selflessness. It requires overcoming stigma. When it comes to hard love, there's nothing sexy about it. It is not going to earn you rewards. It is about the church's willingness to step into vulnerability, into situations where we don't have control and where you don't get any standing and where there are no rewards or accolades, right? It's, it's, it's Mother Teresa kind of love. Now, there's one little problem there when it comes to Mother Teresa, and I hope I can tell that there are um, 37 people that are on this call. So I hope that with what I'm about to say with, about Mother Teresa doesn't cause a whole bunch of you to sign off on me. <laughs> but the thing with Mother Teresa is Mother Teresa is pretty much the most famous Catholic person in existence, right? And that's the irony is that if you are a Mother Teresa kind of person, you will never be Mother Teresa. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, Mother Teresa is an icon. She, she's, she's world famous. But the thing about doing the kind of things and living the kind of way that, that Mother Teresa did is you, you don't get any credit. There, there's no credit. It's completely under the radar, you know, right? No one's going to give you a reward for visiting Rikers Island. No one's going to give you a reward for going to the homeless shelter, right? This is hard, hard love. And the epitome of it is in caring for the poor and the marginalized. It is in standing with those who have no voice. It is in defending the rights of people who can't defend their rights. It's in walking alongside people whom society says they're lazy and it's their fault that, that they're in the situation that they're in. Now, if you're a, a reformed person, I think that, and, and I'm a reformed person too. When I read a passage like this, I have a, an alert button that kind of like a red flag that immediately sets off in my, in my mind. And that's that this is starting to sound a whole lot like salvation by work. So is Jesus saying that, that we get the way that we get into heaven is by caring for the poor, that that's like a work that we have to do. And that is absolutely not the case. Scripture clearly teaches it clearly teaches that, that no human being is good enough for God, that we all fall short of the glory of God because of human sinfulness, but that God who is rich in mercy by sheer grace, by his love for us, grants us salvation through Jesus Christ, and that we are saved not by works, but by believing in what Jesus has done for us. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So Jesus is in no way... Um, you know, he's in no way coming back from that, right? We are and only can be saved by grace. We are sinners. We were lost. We were in rebellion against God. We were refugees from God. We were in the prison of our sin. We were deep in soul sickness. And yet God showed grace to us 
by being willing to take our sin and to take our poverty and to take our alienation and to take our rebellion on himself and die on a cross. And all Jesus is saying is that if that is you, and if you have received grace, if you've received love, and if you received forgiveness, and if you were impoverished and Jesus out of his wealth embraced poverty to make you rich, then you ought to do the same thing. Then I ought to do the same thing. And that if I'm stingy and if I don't care for the poor and if I don't care for the marginalized and if I'm not willing to forgive my neighbor, then can I really claim to be forgiven? Can I claim that Jesus, you know, gave up his heaven, his power for me to enrich me that I may be forgiven and be welcomed and be made rich in the Father's eyes, but I'm not willing to do that for my fellow brother and sister, for human beings either here at church or around the world, then how, can I, how could that possibly be true for me that I have known the love of God and I have truly put my faith in Jesus Christ? The, the scriptures, I, I, I want to say, are universally uh, emphatic on this point that we love because God first loved us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we also ought to lay down our lives for each other. And the amazing reward of loving the poor, loving the marginalized, and caring for the weak, caring for the immigrant, is that when we do so, Jesus says, you're doing that for me. That puts you in touch with Christ. You know, um, recently a member of our church, she fell in a subway and uh, she's in a hospital and the hospitals now have a policy that they're not allowing outside visitors, right? But we can call, you can call. At a minimum, you can call. Someone's lonely, we can call, right? Jesus is saying, when you call that person, when you show up, right? It's like you're calling me. Mother Teresa, each one of them, is Jesus in disguise, she said. So I had a lot, of, um, a, a lot of angst this week just thinking about the pandemic and thinking about what we could do. And it occurred to me that, you know, this whole situation really at the end of the day, um, the poor are still there, right? They haven't gone anywhere. The, the marginalized are still there. The disenfranchised are still there. They're, they've always been there. And if there's anybody that's going to suffer as a result of this pandemic coming through, it's going to be the same people who were already suffering. So this time, this pandemic, as we're, you know, I know that probably each one of you, you want to do something, you want to make a difference. And it's not clear right now what to do, right? right. Toilet papers bought up, you know, the masks, the, the, um, uh, surgical masks are not available. You know, it, what, what can you do? Well, you know what? There's always been things to do. And I think that now those things are more urgent than ever. Listen, there's two kinds of people. All right. There, there's people who, right. Their greatest fear with the coronavirus is the stock market. And there's people whose greatest fear with the coronavirus is that they won't be able to put food on the table for their family. Do you know, there's 114,000 kids in New York city public school systems who are homeless, 114,000 kids in New York City who are homeless, who live in temporary housing or shelters. That is more than the population of Albany. And the city right now is calling on schools to shut down. But if these kids are not able to go to school, a lot of them coming from single parent families who work minimum wage, right? How are the parents gonna be able to go and make money if the kids aren't at school, right? Did you know that a lot of these kids, they're, they're, the 
only meal that they get, or maybe the best meal, but for many, uh, the only meal that they get is the school lunch, right? There's deep poverty in this city, and the church needs to step up. We need to open our eyes, and we need to, to think, what would Jesus do? Who would he care for? Who is he standing with during this time? In the first, second, and third centuries, and I'll close, I'll close with this, the, the church grew rapidly because when the bubonic plague hit the Roman Empire, Christians stuck together. They cared for each other, and they cared for the sick at great risk to themselves. And because of that, the church grew and was blessed. And I love this author, Rodney Stark. He's, he has a book called The Rise of Christianity. Listen to what he said. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments or relationships. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. 10, 20, 30 years from now, they're, they're going to they're gonna look back on the world. The history will look back, and maybe it'll be Wikipedia articles that'll be written about COVID-19. And I would like to think that in the Wikipedia article, there'll be a little section that's going to say the church's response. But the question is, what will the church's response be during this time? Right? What will we be known for? I think if the church is the body of Christ, and if we have a God who gave himself up for us, who took on poverty for us, who took our sickness on himself, if the body of Christ is the body of Jesus, then that paragraph ought to say that the church went above and beyond to care for everybody who is affected by that problem, even at great cost and risk to self.